Hello and welcome to episode 24 of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. My name is Joe Montague and I am your host. Um, You'll no doubt hear at some stage during this introduction a digger going past. I'm recording this in my kitchen because my girls are back at school, (laughs) which is great news. So I don't have to go upstairs into my little office anymore. I decided to bring my recording rig downstairs. Um, And we live basically on a building site, so you'll hear a digger going past, I'm sure. Okay, so it's been an interesting couple of weeks. If you listen to last episode you'll know that I had a very, very minuscule mention in the Times newspaper in the Enterprise section. Um, And as a result of that, the amount of listeners I have has risen um, quite significantly. So if you're new and listening to this, um, welcome, hello, and I hope that you're enjoying um, sort of going back through the archives of the podcast and listening to some of the interviews I've done with uh, other people. And... uh, If uh, you're not new, then hello and welcome anyway. (laughs) Um, Okay, so this episode is an interesting one. It's a new format I'm trying where we discuss the life of somebody who is no longer with us. I mean, I suppose it's not new in the sense that the very first episode of the podcast was me um, discussing the life of George Martin. Um, So I guess it isn't new, but somehow I sort of lost... Um, lost that and went started to try and find people who uh, were actually involved with the 60s recording and still around now um, but I thought the more I thought about it the more I thought it wasn't fair to leave particular people off um, just because they're not with us or perhaps because their stories have been documented already I think it's still worthwhile getting um, viewpoints on those things and if we've got a lot of younger listeners um, they might not have read up on these people So I'm talking specifically about quite well-documented people involved in 60s recordings like Phil Spector or Joe Meek, um, who are people who are on sort of my list of of, uh, subjects I'd like to discuss um, and sort of talk about the lives of. Um, So anyway, with that in mind, today's episode is me discussing um, with two chaps uh, called Leslie Baldock and John Briggs the life um, and career of... Bobby Graham, who was a 60s session drummer from the UK, and he played on, I think, something crazy like 15,000 sessions, which is ridiculous. I mean, we're back in the day when you'd be doing three sessions a day, and in each session you'd be doing three or four songs. I mean, it's madness. Um, And embarrassingly for me, as a drummer, I had never even heard of him. Um, And I've been obviously listening to lots of him now, and it's just insane. I mean, clearly I'd heard him before because he's played on so many hits that, you know, if you listen to any Phil Spector stuff, he's he's played on a lot of that kind of thing. And um, actually, what am I talking about? What should eat my words? That's Hal Blaine on a lot of that. Anyway, I'm babbling now. Um, So, yeah, it's just an interesting one. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. uh, And hopefully if it if it seems to go down well i will continue with this format um as you know part of the the sort of collection of things that we do here on the podcast um so the conversation starts with leslie talking and we sort of just dived straight in we got on a zoom call and just dived straight in so the conversation starts with leslie talking about why these guys are interested in bobby graham and how they sort of came about to be interested by it and it was just too good to, to leave off, but it starts in a, a bit of a funny place. Um, so anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I will see you on the other side. Here we go.
just tell you why we both do this thing. Partly because we both care about music, but, but partly because we're both speaking for someone that really can't speak for themselves anymore. Um, I knew Bobby as a, a friend. We were friends for five years before I even knew he was a musician. Our boys were in the same class at school together. We were neighbours. Um, and we used to have a lot of summer barbecues. And Bob would often be on his own. His wife worked. His son was like 10 or 11 years old and out of the house. And um, he would smell the barbecue. And I'd hear this, you having a barbecue, mate? Yeah. <laughs> and can I come and join in? And sure. And um, this probably happened 15 or 20 times over five years. And he was a great talker. Um, he had loads of stories. But not one of them was about his musical history. Wow. I never never said a word about it. Um, and he came endeared to the whole family, not just myself, but my wife and my three children who kind of grew up with him. Um, and one day his son, Sean, was around the house and we are watching um, a Bond movie. I can't remember which one, but we're all big Bond fans. And you hear the... Dun, 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 and uh, Sean says, oh, my dad played on that. Sorry? My, my dad played on that. Your dad played on the James Bond theme music. Yeah, he did. Why didn't you ever tell me? And I didn't believe him as well. And Bobby's name is Robert Neat. So I went and this is the early days of the internet. So we're then talking about plugging in your computer, hitting the thing above the old noise, getting on there, typing in Google, the page coming down really, really slowly, typing in Robert Neat, nothing. So about two weeks later, Sean comes back and I said, you lied to me, mate. You know I love music. You know I love Bond. And you said your dad played in a song. There's no musician called Robert Lee. Oh, his name's Bobby Graham. Bobby Graham. <laughs> Screen explodes. <laughs> so I went round to his house. I said, Bob, did you ever play? Oh, I did a few things, mate. And at that point, I still had no idea um, of the wealth of history this guy had been and little by little over the years and he told me stories and so all the things that I generally do are based on stories that he told me um, and through that I got to meet John Briggs um, who helps out on the site that we, we run in Bobby's name and I mean this guy was there he knew the Dave Clark, five members. He is a particularly close friend of Mike Smith. He ran the fan club. He used to go drinking with Mike and stuff like this. And my only regret out of all of this is that I wasn't there at the time. Um, everything I, I have is based on little stories that have been told to me. Wow. I, I mean, that's crazy that you lived next door to him for so long. <laughs> and, uh, and he just didn't know. I mean, what humble humble beginning. <laughs> well, in its way, is one of the reasons that we became good friends because we were friends. It wasn't me and Bobby Graham. I was friends with Robert Neat. And when Bobby played his last concert in a little pub in Hartford, um, there was a, it was called the Barge. It was about 20 or 30 years there. And one of them was Rod Argent. And I sat with Rod all night, um, talking away and stuff. And about 50 times during the night, someone came up to him and asked him a question. It's amazing how many people walk into pubs with their own demo of their own band. He got given about 10 demos wow. and I felt sorry for him because he just was going to see his mate. Uh, and even though it was a little pub with 20 people there, he got disturbed about 50 times. Well, that never happened with Bob and me. So I, I guess we had five years of apprenticeship uh, and then we got to find out about the music stories a little bit more. <laughs> that's fantastic. I, I mean, that's just, I think it's an amazing story. Mm. Um, so I should say, uh, 
that we uh, we're doing things a little bit differently. So we've kind of dived straight in, which I'm really pleased about. Um, and I'll I'll just uh, say that I'm joined here by uh, Leslie Baldock and John Briggs, who have kindly agreed to come and speak to me about somebody they know a lot more about than I do, and <laughs> Bobby Graham. Um, so uh, we've heard from Leslie, and hi, John. Nice to meet you. Hi. <laughs> um, thanks so much for both of you for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Um, it's a slightly new thing for this podcast, as I've said in the introduction, that um, there's a lot of people who, as you've already alluded to, are no longer with us who were involved in the 60s music scene. And rather than just completely passing them by altogether, I thought it's uh, it would be a nice idea to try and put together episodes based on those people, which is exactly what this is going to be. Um, and I am embarrassed to admit that until fairly recently last couple of years i hadn't heard of bobby graham <laughs> um, and i think that that is a i would suggest that if people of my generation that's probably quite common <laughs> um and to say i mean i've got some numbers here he played on fifteen thousand recordings um 13 number ones 40 top fives and spent over three years in the top 40 of the uk charts that's to say i've not heard of him up until recently is unbelievable no, you have heard of him Every time oh, I listen to the radio, yeah. every time, every TV program I watch, my wife gets bored of me going, oh, Bobby was on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's madness. And as you just said in, in your introduction, that the fact that he, he, maybe he didn't want to mention it because he didn't want to talk about it anymore, or I don't know, maybe he was just a humble guy. I didn't know him, but it, it seems amazing that he, he isn't, dining out on it and and you know have oh, a uh, he did know. a little bit you'll find with most musicians in that era because they didn't perhaps the ones that didn't really make it the big ones didn't get the recognition you know they do like to talk about it but i think in his case it was my apprenticeship for being a friend <laughs> yes. he didn't want a friend of bobby graham he wanted a friend for robert neat and i suppose it was um sort of a happy accident that he you became he became friends with you as a, and you were a, a music fan. You know, you're somebody who's primarily, pro, uh, primarily positioned to understand the significance of what he's done. I had done. to hold myself back with my enthusiasm. <laughs> um, John, would you mind just telling us a little bit about how how you knew Greg? Uh, sorry, Bobby, and and um, so your history in the in the music scene. Yeah, uh, it's quite interesting because I actually fell out with him <laughs> oh, right. before I, before I became friends with him. Um, I've been involved with the Dave Clark Five since I was a teenager, and as as he has told you, I ran the fan club and ran fanzines, uh, did interviews with them all, everything. And for years, like many Dave Clark Five fans, I thought it was Dave Clark playing the drums. And um, occasionally, I would meet people at record fairs, things like that, the two. You know, it wasn't Dave Clark playing the drums, it was Bobby Graham. And I used to get fed up with it. And um, there was a magazine article, I can't remember if it was Record Collector or one of those magazines, about um, somebody wrote in and said in the reader's letters, oh, it, it, you know, did Dave Clark play the drums or was it Bobby Graham? And the magazine, being very sort of diplomatic, said, oh, no, it's definitely Dave Clark sort of thing. And Bob wrote in and said, no, no, it was me. And I I wrote in and said, no, no, it was Dave Clark. You know, <laughs> get, get lost, sort of. Thing. <laughs> and, uh, of course, a few 
building up over the next few years, I interviewed people out of the Dave Clark Five, not just the Met Group members, but people who had been involved in record um, producing, um, the, the yeah, sound engineers, everybody. And all them then tell me, well, no, it was actually Bobby Graham. So I thought, well, I'd best get in touch with him. And, and I sent him a letter, got his address, sent him a letter, apologising and said, look, I'm very, very sorry. I've now been told it was you from very good authorities. So, you know, I, I'd just like to apologise. And a couple of days later, phone rang. It's Bobby Graham here. And I expected to get told off. You know? <laughs> but no, you're very, very nice. And, and from then on, it, usually on a Monday tea time, the phone would ring about five o'clock. It's Bob. And he, he would just have a chat for an hour. Um, just about, not particularly the Dave Clark Five, but about his career in general. And we became very good friends, but I never actually met him. I talked to him for years on the phone every Monday night, but I never actually got to meet him wow. in person. That's, that's <laughs> incredible. I um, I love that. I, I often work with, uh, in the, the sort of job I do at recording drums with people, I often speak with people, as I'm speaking with you guys, who I who I don't meet, and I feel like I've got a fairly close relationship with some of them, and it's a, it's a really cool thing, and I think it's a... A testament to musicians in general that they can mm. they could just chat and they just want to talk about stuff and uh, yeah I love that I think that's a fantastic story. Um, so I wonder whether it might if we um, perhaps start from the beginning and talk a bit about um, the beginnings of uh, sort of Bob's career and the way that the way it unfolded and then you guys could just chip in with <laughs> with tidbits of information as you kind of see fit does does that sound like a, a yeah. good a good yeah. way forward <laughs> so um i'm actually not sure where either of you were based but it um bob was born in where's where's the beginning of my thing here <laughs> in edmonton in north london so primed to have a, a career in you know london was was the center of the music scene mm. back then really wasn't yeah. it yeah. um and he was part, eventually, was part of an elite group of session musicians who um, who could be uh, likened with the Wrecking Crew in America. Yeah. Um, although we don't officially in the UK have a have a sort of Wrecking Crew <laughs> um, uh, th- a sort of likeness, but it's... Bob had a name for them, didn't he, mm. Les? Yeah, the London All-Stars. Oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> did they, um, am I right in thinking they recorded some music under the London All-Stars? Yeah, they did indeed. They did several things. They did a lot of French artists. Uh, Michel Ponoroff, Francois Hardy, Eddie Mitchell would all come across to London to record. Um, they also did their own album, which was reproduced in a day, and I sent you a, uh, a copy of the back page. It's called British Percussion. Yes. If you look at the the list of musicians on there. It's just incredible. And Jimmy Page didn't remember record playing that. He wrote three songs with Bobby and played lead guitar on that. And he didn't remember doing it. That's madness. I mean, the, for me growing up as a Led Zeppelin fan, mm-hmm. the idea that Jimmy Page was involved in the session scene at all uh, mm-hmm. just blew my mind, you know. Well, and John Paul Jones. So the, well, yeah. the, the, the core group would be Bobby on drums, John Paul Jones on bass, Jimmy Page and Big Jim Sullivan on guitar. And you've got people like Eric Ford on the scene, Alan Weyhill. Um, there were so many top, top musicians, but the nucleus of the group was those guys. Was, it, was Vic Flick in that group? 
Uh, he played in the first uh, Eddie Mitchell album, and, and then he was ready to replace by Jimmy Page. Because going back to where you started, uh, mm. the Bond theme yeah. is, is Vic Flick. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, who, yeah. I actually, I, I know Vic quite well. He lives out in the States now. Mm. Oh, wow. It, it just, there was clearly a sort of, as you say, like a nucle- nucleus of guys who were reliable. Mm. And, um, her, you know, the, the Shell Tommy podcast I recorded, mm. almost wish I'd have done it the other way around now. I'd love to have had this conversation first and then spoken to Shell. But as as I kind of got from him, there was, it was pretty standard practice back then to get a backing band to come in and, and yeah. work on the tracks. Well, they had three hours to record four songs and a lot of them were good musicians. It wasn't the fact they couldn't play, but could they play four songs perfectly in three hours? And you, not many you could. Had, you had people like Eric Ford who could sight read music and they would just hand him the sheet of music and he would go in and play it. Now, you couldn't do that to your bog standard um, dance hall band, you know, or garage group, as they would be called in these <laughs> days. They couldn't do that. They couldn't sight read music. A lot of them couldn't even read music. And yet you had people like like Eric and Vic Flick and people like that would just, oh, yeah, I can play that and go and play it. But more of that, they played it with feelings. It wasn't just a question of reading the notes. They, they understood music as well. Because they're, Bob used to criticise the solo on uh, uh, the Cliff song, uh, Move It, because the guy that played it, played it note perfect, but without feeling. <laughs> it's interesting that um, we're kind of pre... Uh, I mean, everything that I think of to do with 60s music is is a, is a comes from sort of a Beatles knowledge. So mm. we're, uh, we're pre... We're talking sort of early 60s almost where the Beatles kind of broke the mould of studio time being in three-hour blocks. Mm. And then uh, when uh, sort of Trident Studios became popular and it, it began to, studio time began to feel, like I suppose, a bit more relaxed. And we're, mm. we're in, the t- in the days now where studio time was um, probably extremely sought after and difficult to get and expensive and mm. um, so That's they have yes yeah so they're just getting musicians who you know as you say they, they the musicians in the band could certainly play it but can they do it under pressure in that three mm. hours and work that quickly and also sometimes they could transform a song there's a song by a french artist called michelle polaroff which the song itself is quite substandard but on that particular session, the performance by Jimmy Page, Bobby and John Paul Jones is exceptional. And they take what's a pretty average song and they make it sound special. Does, am I correct in thinking that Bobby was a, a bit of a jazz fan in, in the first instance? <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I had to do, um, I had to do, sorry, I, ch- I chose to do after he passed, unfortunately, was help his family go through some of the stuff. And two-thirds of his record collection was Stan Kenton. Wow. <laughs> he was the biggest Stan Kenton fan. And for his uh, funeral, he'd uh, written down for his way wanted. There was a particular piece and he put in the brackets, do not fade out. He wanted <laughs> everybody to hear the whole piece. So, yeah, big Stan Kenton fan. Amazing. So did he ever speak to you about how... Um, so the beginnings of his drumming and did he I, I'm assuming he played I, I mean I know from from a bit of research that he liked to play along with um, Ted Heath Orchestra and Ronnie Varell mm. who's obviously a, a, I guess the, the generation previous to, to Bobby in terms yeah. of session player yeah. um, and a lot of his background came from jazz influence mm. well one story Bobby told me and it's quite documented in his book um, yes he was 
a big jazzy. He uh, was a big fan of Ronnie Rivera. I think he was his favourite early drummer. And um, he had a knock on the door one day and he was asked to go and join what would become the Outlaws doing a season at Butlins. And he said, categorically, no. And they said, £15 a week. He said, yes. <laughs> at that moment, he ceased to be a jazzer. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, That seems to be a, a bit of a common... A common tale. I mean, I um, my drum teacher, who I, I will speak to eventually for for this podcast, is if, of the same generation. His name's Ronnie Bottomley from up in Leeds, and um, he talked the same thing. You know, he was an ardent jazzer, and then got involved in summer seasons and exactly what you've just described. And for me, that seemed like you know the sort of being in those rock and rock and roll bands or R and B bands was is a is an amazing thing. Whereas these guys did it for because it paid good money. <laughs> What I can't work out, and I'm still trying to work out, is which was the song that turned Bobby from being a jazz drummer into the legend, the rock drummer he became, because he was with Joe Meek in the early days, Joe Brown, with Marty Wilds, with the John Barry Seven, and the, the drum in them was more of a jazz influence. It was more accompaniment, more subtlety. Uh, but by the time, obviously, it was the Dave Clark Five, and you really got me, the, the drums were the driving force. And I kind of, I asked Shell this question, do you know the, the one song? And he kind of thinks it was You Really Got Me was probably the one that actually, where, uh, where Bobby changed, well, changed their history for sure and you know, became that, that drummer he, we all knew and love. It would either be that one or, or Blood All Over. Mm. They were, Blood All Over, I think, was slightly first. It was November 63. Mm. Um, one of those two definitely so they, as they is the ones where Bobby really came to the fore it seems uh, I mean a really common story among uh, the guys who were involved in, in 60s music that you know being from North London then um, it, it was an old school friend was it was it not who, who invited him to come and do the summer season at Butlins yes yeah and you know the fact that they he went to school together with that person mm. and, and it all just all just fell into place mm. in a really kind of um in a, in a really nice way and it seems to be a really common theme among um working musicians from the 60s that that happened um and the outlaws seems to have been a bit of a a band with some pretty decent pedigree <laughs> <laughs> yes slightly yeah of course you had chess hodges in there as well who People know obviously from Chess and Dave, but he was a seriously good musician. He played guitar initially, got converted to bass for the Outlaws, but obviously became known as piano playing. But he was on many, many sessions as well in the 60s. Did um, Bobby talk much about his time with the Outlaws and working with Joe Meek and, and that group? Yes, he, uh, he did. He hated Joe Meek. <laughs> <laughs> He, um, and I mean that. Uh, yeah, Bobby was a very kind man. Um, he I, he told me about Joe Meek before I saw the Telstar movie. And I have to say, Con O'Neill is absolutely brilliant because the person he plays in that movie is what Bobby described to me, literally word for word. But he literally, they'd walk into the session and Joe would record some noises on a tape and sit to the band, right, go and play this. And... You know, for Telstar, it would have been... <laughs> he couldn't even do that in tune. And, you know, the boys had to make something of it. And he was incredibly gifted. He was absolutely legend in the pioneer music, but very, very stressy. Uh, and in the uh, Telstar movie, it's Clem Cattini, it's shown as being thrown... It was actually Bobby who was being thrown down the stairs in real life. And... Uh, <laughs> 
Clem wasn't on uh, Joey Remember Me. Bobby did that one, but they kind of did that for the film. But yeah, Bobby was thrown down the stairs, followed by his drum kits. So yeah, he was quite <laughs> glad to leave in the end. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, it was about that time uh, working with the Outlaws and, and Joe Mick that uh, they Bobby was starting to, to get into a bit of writing um, from from my research. There's a, a particular song, Crazy Drums, that um, I, I've read that Joe Meek was credited for, for yeah. creating when actually it was Bobby that came up with the whole idea for that. And he didn't get a penny for that as well, Bobby. I think he got a very small check from the uh, PRS when he was in his 60s. But um, like many people, he happily signed away a contract. He went in there with great intentions and uh, he was told by Joe Meek that his name would be on the label to give it credibility. But it was Bobby's concept, Bobby's showcase. And Joe Meek got the credit and he got the money for it. It must have been really frustrating for him. Does Do you think... Um, I mean, did, does he have a chip on his shoulder about it at all or is it just brush it off? Um, no, he didn't have a chip on his shoulder. And um, he... It's part of growing up, you know, he, he, if he was the only person that happened to, that would be you know, a thing, but it happened to all the bands back at those times. It was common practice in those days. Um, Ron Ryan quotes Larry Page, especially as uh, putting his name on all his songs. Uh, and Dave Clark did it as well. A lot of them did it. A lot of the record producers mm. got their names on songs that had nothing, nothing to do with writing. Yeah. It's common practice. It feels like uh, a word I've written down is is murky, and I kind of alluded to it with my conversation with Shell. Tell me that it seems, as you've just said, it was confusing who wrote the songs. It's confusing who played on the songs. Mm. Um, it really was, uh, you know, as we we sort of say now, a show business. You know, it was mm. just a case of what what's going to work, what's going to get this selling the best, not who actually did this. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes it really difficult to do any <laughs> any research. Um, I mean, I haven't found the list, a comprehensive list of the tracks that Bobby played on. It seems really hard. I only know of two or three hundred of them. He didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> one of my greatest joys, though, in all honesty, and this is one of the, you know, um, sincere pleasures, was listening to Tom Jones' It's Not Unusual. And there's so many people claimed that played on that. It was actually Ronnie Verrill who did the single. And only recently I found the demo that Bobby did and Bobby played in it. But we listened to it together in his room and he said, to me, do you know what they say it's me, but it's not because that's Ronnie. And I used to nick that particular lick and he literally taught me how Bobby played the drums and told me how Ronnie played the drums. And I was listening to the guy who was involved in it playing the records and talking about it. So when I eventually found the version he was on, I knew exactly who would perform this version. That's uh, that's fascinating. It's mm. it's those little subtleties. And, and, you know, as a, a musician, we get taught to, to keep researching further back and mm. further back. And, um, you know, I love the idea that, uh, you know, that... Bobby was learning off Ronnie Varel and then mm. was passed to Bobby and then the next generation, the next generation. Mm. It's, and he he quite uh, openly stole that, <laughs> that stuff. I, I love it. Um, so it was about, uh, he left the Outlaws and started touring with Joe Brown. Yes. Um, and that seems like it was a bit of a significant step up in terms of, uh, the, the, I guess, gig sizes and um, notoriety. It was a, a bigger a more well-known band. Um, yeah. 
and he was suddenly t- not touring in a van anymore. It was a bit more of a uh, mm. bit more luxury. Yes, um, in the past it'd been the back of transit vans, and you know now we're talking about being part of big showcase tours where many bands would play together, um, being put in hotels, being mobbed by fans to come out, being recognised, being on TV. You know, all these things uh, became, but it also came at a cost because Joe Brown was very, very disciplined, notoriously hard worker, and he expected everybody in the band to uh, be the same, and Bobby had troubles with that a little bit. I get that sense from from reading about him that he was a... Uh... A kind of, um, I don't know, an assertive personality, perhaps, if we put it that way. Um, well, the Bobby I knew was very different to that Bobby then, but that Bobby then was painfully shy. So how did he get over it? By drinking. Uh. And then when Bobby drank, he could still play the drums, but I guess, and I'm, I'm surmising because obviously I wasn't there, but I guess that's when the extra of the character came out a little bit more. Interesting. I mean, it must have... It must have been interesting for him being surrounded by these big personalities, and then as a as an incredibly shy person. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's Dutch courage, isn't it? And uh, I, I think a lot of musicians that I've spoken to of that era do tend to have quite a, um, a personality that that kind of we're describing, where it's you know, especially drummers and rhythm section players who mm. have to their job is to be solid, and mm. this is where the time is, and you don't sort of musically speaking, don't argue with me kind of thing. And I think that, that it, it sounds similar to other people well, I've spoken to. I'm going to give you two analogies uh, here. One is that he could keep perfect time, even though he'd been drinking. Perhaps <laughs> getting on, on the drums was different. But the, the Bobby I knew would struggle to get on the drums because of his health conditions. He was in really a poor state of health when I first met him. But as soon as he got behind those drums, he, it was like a kid. Wow, and the, all the pain from the arthritis and stuff that went away. And honestly, I'd see him be lifted on a on a seat and then play with a dexterity that few can match. It's um, that's interesting. I must bring out, you know, have like some sort of stored memory in him, a childlike memory of playing or something that just a but a, a flick a switch that's flipped when mm. <laughs> when he sat there. Um. I'm interested. I mean, this this story has got to be covered. I think you probably know where I'm going. So we're talking about 1961 here, uh, really early 60s, and it was around this time when he was playing with Joe Brown and doing these tours that um, they played at the Cavern, um, and or I, I'm not sure whether they were playing at the Cavern or it just in Liverpool at the point. Uh, again, supposing it was at a town, Liverpool Town Hall, perhaps. Or no, they played at the Cavern, and I sent you one from the New Brighton area as well. But they did two shows up in Liverpool. And they they went out drinking after the show and uh, Brian Epstein was there. Mm. And the famous story is that it was around the same time that the Beatles weren't getting on with uh, Pete Best and, and um, Bobby was actually asked uh, whether he would consider um, joining the Beatles at that time. Well, yeah, this is one of those stories that not many will believe unless they were told it. And I was told it face-to-face by a person that I trusted implicitly. And yes, there's truth in it. Uh, he was asked... But at the same point, Joe Brown was number one. He only knew the Beatles because they were the group that supported them. They were very good. Um, and he had a family and a life in, in London. So it was literally was like the way he told it to me is, do you, do you want to be part of this outfit, mate? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the quote was um, he'd never heard of them or who, who's heard of them outside of London. Or, you know, they're only heard of outside of London. 
it was something like that, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, something like that. But, um, and again, you know, people didn't travel the, the way they do to gigs now, you know. Yes. Uh, so the London crowd and the Liverpool crowd would be completely different, you know. And he probably wouldn't have heard of the Beatles, but in Liverpool, they were absolutely legendary at that time. We, and we are talking 61, so the beginning of their, their career. Um, but he definitely was offered it. And in later career, uh, when Ringo was ill, he was offered the chance to go into Australia with them. And oh. he was too busy. Wow, I didn't. I didn't know that part of yeah. the story. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Then Jimmy Nickel took over. Yeah. But yeah. did Bobby nearly join the Beatles? Not really. He was asked. <laughs> you know, it, it, would you be up for it, mate? You know, that's basically as far as I got. While we're on this subject, was um, is there any truth in that he was considered for the Kinks job at one point? Well, I'm going to tell a story here. Actually, I've not told, and again, this was told to me by Bobby. But Ray and Dave would keep in touch with him. Um, and I'd like to take a moment, if I can, just to say thank you to these guys because they were the first band that openly acknowledged the use of session musicians and nothing has done to their, been done to their reputation. And they're part of the reason that Bobby still has got his legacy. They really are. Um, but they would keep in touch with him regularly. And this is the way he told the story to me. I'd go around and see him for a cup of coffee. Oh, Ray's been on the phone. He wants to get the band back together again, but he's annoyed with Dave next week. <laughs> oh, Dave's been on the phone. He wants to get the band again together, but he's annoyed with Ray. Uh, they, they always were talking about getting the band back together, and they did ask Bobby, who couldn't have possibly done it because he wasn't anywhere near health enough, would he be interested in drumming for them? Um, as for being part of the Kinks in the early days, no, I don't think so, never. Mick Avery was, always was a good drummer. It's a bit like having a sub in a football pitch. He, they brought a new player in. He was on the bench until he was ready to play. When he was ready, he was in there. That makes sense. I mean, it, it makes sense that uh, these these discussions may well have taken place fleetingly, you know, just like in having a few drinks after sessions mm. or whatever. But, you know, whether anything formal ever happened, you, you don't know. So, Well, as a, a little side, I mean... Uh, John could tell about many stories with the Dave Clark Five guys and when he'd go out drinking them afterwards and over a few beers, people say a lot more things than they would do when they don't have a few beers. <laughs> um, so this is around this time that he started to to sort of dip his toe into session work. So we're talking kind of 1962 now. Mm. And he'd left, um, he'd left Joe Brown's band, but mm. previous to that, um, I, I've written here that he was recording a picture of you mm-hmm. and uh, which was being produced by either produced by Tony Hatch or Tony Hatch was there mm-hmm. and that was where the it sort of started you know do you want to come and work on this session mm-hmm. do you want to come and work on this session um, and uh, he, he started to work with John Barry mm-hmm. um, and I suppose that the the music scene at that time I mean, probably and it still is now but was quite tight knit and once you've done a good job for one person it got passed around Um did he speak much to you about the the beginnings of that and and what how he kind of started to get his way into um, a steady job working sessions essentially and not touring anymore? Not really. He talked to me a lot about um, being a session player, kind of from when he started, but not how he got into it. But John would know a lot more about that kind of era and how people got into the jobs. Yeah, I think you're right. It was very close knit. You know, the big names, the John Barrys and people like that would keep the same musicians together uh, and use them on all... I mean, John Barry's seven 
but loads of different artists and individuals from that group would then back other artists as as session musicians. So yeah, it was a very close-knit group. It seems that, I mean, we've already kind of spoken about it a little bit, but the big session, and I've I've done inverted commas there, you guys who are listening to the podcast can't see, (laughs) the session players, um, were Ronnie Varel and and Kenny Clare was doing a lot of sessions. And these guys, I mean, I, I studied in jazz, my history is jazz, and they sound like jazz players to me. They, you know, they're very jazz players. And one of the things that sort of a, put Bobby apart from them was that he had um, a, a great sort of R and B feel. You know, we're talking like the, the days of early Beatles as well, where it was kind of American music almost, American feel. Yeah, um, and I guess that actually came from either the Kinks or these Dave Clark Five Sessions. And, you know, Dave Clark, I think, was quite inspired by uh, American music as well, if I know correctly. And so many bands were, because the when the ships were coming to the place like Liverpool, the people that had been out in the Navy had been to America would bring these records back. You know, the Beatles were so inspired by Motown and black artists. So I kind of guess, you know, that they kind of nicked that sound a little bit. John, yeah, what's your ex- what, yeah? Oh, sorry. Go one, on. I'm interested in your experiences in this. One of the other things was that uh, at that time, the American Air Force had many, many bases in England, and they would have dancers on at the bases, and the British groups would tour the American Air Force bases, doing these dances, and as people like Mike Smith and Dave Clark have said in interviews, they would hear these. It, you know, in that in that gap between our sets, the jukebox would go on, and they would hear this American music, and the, the, they weren't hearing in England, and that's how they got into it from from the American Air Force bases. So we're kind of uh, talking very almost. Uh, I'm trying to picture a timeline in in my head. It's kind of they would, I suppose, they'd be doing that, and then um, it would infiltrate into the recording scene i mean everything worked seemed to work very quickly back then it wasn't Mm. you know people didn't take the time over albums like they do now (laughs) and they presumably all happened quite fast and then there was this changing of the guard in Mm. um you know i know i'm summing it up in a, a very crude way but there was you know the changing of the guard from the the sort of jazz uh, almost military trained musicians mm. into this more sort of relaxed American Motown um, R&B feel. Um, I mean, I've got an amazing, amazing quote that, well, I find interesting that I'm, I'm going to read out um, that said, uh, so this is from, from Bobby's book, I'm, I'm assuming, that um, it said, Ronnie Varel and Kenny Clare had been around for a long time and both were big band musicians. Ronnie had come out of the Ted Heath band and Kenny had come out of the Johnny Dankworth band. And neither were particularly fond of rock and roll music. Um, they had a great big band jazz feel and would play exactly what was written on the drum parts. And if a fly landed on their chart, they'd play it. Whereas I, could, I couldn't read, so I had to rely on what I felt was right. And I played loud. My Ooh. trick was, if the singer took a breath, do a fill-in. And I was one of the first new generation coming in. Jim Sullivan was already in. And Jimmy Page did the same thing. He couldn't read a note, but he had a great feel. Yeah. One of the trademarks about the Bobby sound, and as I said to you before, I'm not really a technical drummer, but leading to the chorus, Bob would always fill 
with you know three or four big hits of the snares or the toms so bob would really build to the chorus and like famously on stuff like all day and all the night and there's a bit of it in you really got me as well where um ray davis had heard on a buddy holly record this tap 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 on the snare and he wanted to incorporate it in there. And do you know the funniest thing? When I see a band cover, you really got me, and I've seen so many bands cover in the pubs. Not many of the drummers get it. They didn't they don't quite listen to it. They don't do that. It just brings you to the chorus. And that's why Mark, the drummer, when I kind of watching them in the band, do, have they paid that much attention or are they just going, you know, through the motions that one of the many songs they covered? But yeah, I guess Bobby's big thing was bringing you to the chorus and really he punched those drums. He was probably the loudest snare hitter before the likes of John Bonham came around. <laughs> I find it really interesting that, um, I mean, one of the things that I enjoy most about uh, when I work is speaking to, to the artist who's written the song, who often isn't a, a knowledgeable drummer. Mm. And it's those little tiny details that you've just described mm. that are, that's what everybody's listening for, whether they mm. know it or not. Mm. Um, and I think it's lovely that the way that you've just described that, because mm. that is the tiny little subtleties that make a drummer as good as they are. And the fact that Bobby, I mean, there's one specific example I read about, about the You Really Got Me, mm. where the riff is at the beginning and he does a, a snare hit before he comes in. Mm. And it seems like such a small detail, but I think Shell Talmy spoke about, um, not with me, but in, a, in an interview, about that being just just that, that moment was incredible. They decided mm. to keep it and mm. it lifted the song and, and suddenly it kind of brought the song to life, putting that one one little hit in. Yeah, um, and I I didn't really speak to Bobby directly about this, but I've read up on it as well. Uh, and it wasn't intended. He was caught out. He wasn't quite ready. <laughs> so when, um, and I don't know if you've been to see Sunny Afternoon, for example, the theatre show, but it starts off with them in a dance hall band. And I was not sure where we were going. And then it got to the bit where you really got me. And then when they play it in the, in the theatre, it's three times as loud as anything you hear before. And you jump out of your seat and you hit the drums. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. And then it was like, shit, I'm on a ride now. <laughs> I can't go with this. And I think that was a part of the reason why he played the way he did on the song. And let's not forget that when they recorded this, the Kinks were nearly out of contract. They were, if that song hadn't been a hit, there wouldn't have been Sunday Afternoon, Waterloo, Sunset, you know, Days. There wouldn't have been those songs because the band would have been dropped. It's, I, I, I just find it really interesting. I can imagine the, the, way, that, the way they were all working at that time that, uh, you know, Bobby was pr presumably doing three sessions a day, most days, and um, would have been just... I, I don't know the story of that exact session, but presumably he was doing something else that day. And, mm. and I can imagine him, it just being another song he was doing. Mm. And I can imagine exactly that situation of him not being ready. Mm. I can, I can feel the same feeling and then just doing it. And of course, nowadays they'd have probably snipped it out mm. <laughs> and they had no, they just kept it in yeah. um, because that's the way it worked then. <laughs> and the, same, the famous, um, you might have to beat this one, but the famous fuck off from Dave Davis is in there <laughs> because that was on the, the take and they couldn't edit it out. So they tried to, on an overdub, they tried to sing over the top of it, but apparently it's still on there and they kept it because it was on the take, the one they had to keep. 
it's I just think that's brilliant. I mean, there's a, a good example of that in Hey Jude, the, the one that they didn't notice. I mean, it's it's kind of disputed in Beatles world, but yes, yeah, it's, it's that exact thing that they just they just have to keep it because it's there. <laughs> and once it's mixed in, it's mixed in, isn't it? Um, I mean, it seems like he was doing. I mean, he was earning a lot of money at that point. At that time, yeah, and love it went down the pub, the pub as well. <laughs> you know, you were talking about three sessions a day. He would do uh, ten to one sort of two to five and then six or seven till 10, then they would all hit the pub. And quite often he went jamming and he jammed with Hendrix one night in a bar in Soho. Wow. Uh, you know, about one in the morning. And then we'd get up next morning at seven o'clock and be off again. You know, that was their life, six days a week. They were only paid about six pound a session though, weren't mm. they? Yeah, six, seven pound a session, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. in today's money, that I guess what would that be about? Um, Probably fifty good out of four, fifty, yeah. sixty, something like that, maybe hundred at the tops. I don't know, but, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't going to uh, buy my house. That's for sure. <laughs> I guess living costs were lower, and he mm. was he was young and mm. you know enjoying himself. I'm mm. I'm assuming, and um, he will have. I, he has a. Am I right in thinking about that time? So I guess we're talking sort of mid sixties now. He had a, a wife and kids, and that's yeah. partly why he decided to stop touring and and just focus on the recording. Um, yes, I, I don't know too much about that personal aspect of his life. Um, there's no doubt that he was away from home a lot and that wasn't good for his family life. And that would have been part of it as well. Um, but with Bobby, it was always the next opportunity. Um, you know, after 64 was a massive year. He was on so many sessions and 65, 66, 67. Then they started petering out. And he got offered a job at Barclay Records in France and he hopped over to do that. So I don't think it was a question of just family. I think it was a question of working and going where the work took him. But it did mean he was away from home an awful lot. So he, he was an ambitious guy. And the reason I ask is because the a lot of, uh, a lot of the musicians I speak to of that era almost fall into it. You know, they they find themselves in a beat band after you know after they've left school, and then they get offered a summer season, and then before they know it, they're a working musician, and and actually they never set out to do that. But it sounds to me that drums was something that Bobby fell in love with and really did want to make a career out of. I think drums is all he could do, to be honest, and he was damn <laughs> good at it. I I think what you described of that character was true for Bobby. That he kind of fell into it, and you know he went he went where the drums took him. There we go. So as I say, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that as much as uh, I enjoyed having that conversation. Um, I find it really interesting for me to sort of navigate um, having two people to speak to. Um, But I think uh, personally, I think it's a nice way of moving forward and it's a nice way of covering um, the life and career of of people. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can do I can do more of those um, on different subjects in the future. I have some uh, ideas, some that have come from you guys and some that uh, are ideas that I've had already that I mentioned in the introduction. Um, Okay, so next week we have the second half of that conversation. um, And that just leaves me to say, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do that. My email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. I am on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums. Uh, My website is www.allyouneedisdrums. 
You can find the information about the remote recording I do and the isolated drums that I send out each week on my mailing list um, on those websites. Um, I'd like to thank my good friend Joe Kane for the introduction and outro music that he supplied for this podcast and my other pal uh, David Henshaw for the beautiful artwork that uh, he supplies us every fortnight. Um, So that's that. Have a fantastic couple of weeks and I will see you in two weeks' time. All right. Goodbye. (laughs) 